Yes. And the amazing thing is that our brain was designed to look for food. That's what we don't understand is how hard it was for our ancestors just to stay alive. And they looked constantly for food. And when they found it, their happy chemicals turn on, not to make them happy, but to wire in, oh, so this is what I need to do. This is the path. This is the step. That's how you get the need met. That's what our happy chemicals were designed for, not for sitting on the couch and calling the pizza guy. Welcome to the tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober podcast. My name is Janet Goron. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. If you're a first-time listener, then a big welcome to you. Here at Tribe Sober, we enable people to change their relationship with alcohol and then to go on and thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last five years, we've helped hundreds of people to do just that. And we created Tribe Sober because we believe it's really, really hard to change your drinking alone. So at Tribe Sober, we're all about community. We're all about helping and encouraging each other to stay on track. Each week, we feature a community voice just to give you a flavour of the awesomeness of our tribe. Here's a lady from one of our WhatsApp groups. I joined Tribe Sober in June 2020 after years of trying to either moderate or ditch the booze for good. I could never get it right, but after joining the tribe with the inspiration and the continuous support, I only wish I'd joined sooner. Being with Tribe Sober made me see that I didn't have a problem, but rather an opportunity to create a life I didn't want to escape from. It took me a whole year and 84 day ones, but I never gave up and the tribe never gave up on me. I'm happy to say I'm close to four months sober and loving my sober life and continue to grow with my tribe. Thank you Tribe Sober for saving me from the toxic relationship I had with alcohol. I don't ever see myself going back. So if you want to join our community and get a bit of support, just go to tribesober.com and click on Join Our Tribe. One of the awesome things about podcasting is that I get to chat to so many experts, which means I'm always learning new stuff, which according to my next guest is an essential part of staying happy. I was so pleased to get the opportunity to interview Dr. Loretta Broining, as I've just finished reading her fabulous book, Habits of a Happy Brain. Our conversation resulted in a personal light bulb moment for me, which I'm going to share with you at the end of the podcast. But have a listen to our conversation first. I began by asking Loretta to introduce herself. I live outside of San Francisco. I'm a grandmother of two. I'm a retired college professor, and I've been a writer. Um, I retired early, like as soon as they would let me out the door. And so I've been writing books since then. 
So let's uh, let's dive into alcohol a little bit. So can you explain what goes on in our brain when we become dependent on alcohol? I mean, for most of us and the people that I work with, we started off as social drinkers in our 20s, in our 30s, no problems. And then by the time we got to our 40s, our 50s, we were we moved more into self-medication and using it to manage our stress and to relax. So, And then when we tried to cut down, we, we found we couldn't. So that seems to be a very average story for, for a woman in her 50s, 60s these days. So what's going on in our brain? So everyone needs to manage stress. Our brain naturally creates a lot of stress because that kept our ancestors alive. So we're always alert for potential threats, and we define threats with neural pathways from whatever triggered your cortisol in the past. So in the past, whatever hurt you, whatever upset you, whether it was big or small, the chemical that was released connected neurons that turn on the chemical more easily today. So we're all challenged to find ways to manage this stress. And the interesting, fascinating thing is whatever worked when you were young, that built a pathway. I came from sort of an unhappy home and my father was given a free trip. So all of a sudden my parents who never left home, they were like traveling. Now, they were very fearful so that when they traveled, like they didn't leave the hotel much. <laughs> but I became addicted to traveling because that was what I learned was like, oh, when you feel bad, you start researching a trip. I worked to save money for a trip. As soon as I took the trip, I focused on the next trip. <laughs> so whenever I was upset about anything, I focused on traveling and it worked. You know, so it just shows that whatever a person's particular, you know, they call coping skills. So the solution then, I mean, just to get right to the point, we all need coping skills. And the more coping skills you have, the, the less you have to overindulge in any one of them. And the more you understand what causes your threatened feelings, um, the more you can relieve them without extreme measures. Yeah, because for people like myself and a lot of people that I work with, we've re been relying on alcohol for decades to cope. We, you know, when we get that stress, that anxiety, we, we reach for alcohol. We haven't even bothered to try other ways. So I listened to uh, an interview you did on on one podcast and you you talked quite a lot about um, a kind of distraction toolkit, and I really loved that. I thought that's what that's what we need, isn't it? And we need to push ourselves and try different things. And uh, I, I loved one of your solutions, which was to listen to a, a comedy clip. You know, just a comedy short, because that will release the which one is it? Which, well, endorphins. Which, which chemical endorphins? But <laughs> yeah. but what's more important is the distraction, and it's sort of like a dog biscuit in the sense that. Um, an animal is fearing a predator, and then it gets a reward. So its attention shifts from the predator to the reward. Now, in the yeah. state of nature, that wouldn't work. You have to focus on the predator. So it's only because our brain sort of exaggerates that feeling that something is threatening that we need distraction. 
we have such a big brain that we can create a predator in our own mind, even when we're perfectly safe. But when you busy your mind with something else, then you can't imagine a predator because your mind is too busy doing something else. Now, preferably, we would busy our mind with something that makes us feel like we're on the path to long-term rewards. But after you've had a few drinks, you're not really in the mood for that. And after you are um, feeling threatened, you're not in the mood for that. So having these short-run distractors is sort of a transition to help you let go of this mental image of threat and focus on taking action toward rewards because that's the ultimate trigger of happy chemicals. Yeah, and it's the uh, that's the dopamine. Dopamine, serotonin, and oxytocin. So after a certain time, our, our brain doesn't get that nice buzz anymore that it gets in the beginning from alcohol. It, and then we build up a tolerance, don't we? I mean, towards the end of my drinking days, I could drink two bottles of wine and I wouldn't feel anything. What, what's going on in our brain? Why does that change? So this is called habituation. And we habituate to everything. So a simple example is, if you love to smell flowers, then why don't you tape a flower to your nose and then you would enjoy it all day? It's because you wouldn't notice it after a short time because our brain habituates to whatever we're experiencing, whether it's good or bad. And that's why we tend to seek more because more is a way to notice it. That's the problem with, with all pleasures. And yeah. that's why... Many people enjoy going camping. I don't. But going camping takes you away from your usual pleasures, so then you're, you're more um, appreciative of them. And a simple example would be if you were lost in a forest and you didn't eat all day, and then you get back to your campsite and you have some old bread and peanut butter, it may taste like the best meal you've ever had because when you have a real need and you're meeting a real need, that's what stimulates your dopamine is meeting a real need. So you believe that the alcohol will meet a real need because it did when you had it the first time. So it's a real physical pathway that on a day when you were feeling really bad when you were young, for whatever reason, then that felt good and your brain said, wow, this is the solution. Dopamine was released, built a pathway. The next time you feel bad in that way, then you look for it. And then you build the positive expectation. So you start feeling good in advance, just like if I were baking a loaf of bread and I smelled the bread in the oven and I get excited in advance. So these are all natural responses. And I'm very I'm being very specific about this because a lot of the alcohol education uh, tries to give the impression that these responses are somehow specific to alcoholics. So it's important to know that everyone has to struggle to manage this brain we have. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. Yeah, the, the anticipation. I remember when I was a drinker, I'd get home from work and just walking through the door towards the fridge, the dopamine was going, I'm sure, opening the bottle, even before I tasted anything. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'll give you a funny example. Um, 
in order to um, honor my habituation, so I have one coffee every other day. And like when I wake up in the morning, oh, it's a coffee day. (laughs) (laughs) So do you think you double your pleasure on coffee day than if you have coffee every day? I think if I had coffee every day, then it would, I would have no pleasure at all because it would just become the baseline. And then in order to have the pleasure, I think, about, oh, maybe I should have another. Maybe I should have another. I think because we're so used to having three meals a day and snacking, we never really get that hungry. So, you know, maybe we never have the reward that we would have if we'd really fasted, you know, or, or not eaten for a while. Yes. And the amazing thing is that our brain was designed to look for food. That's what we don't understand is how hard it was for our ancestors just to stay alive. And they looked constantly for food. And when they found it, their happy chemicals turn on, not to make them happy, but to wire in, oh, so this is what I need to do. This is the path. This is the step. That's how you get the need met. That's what our happy chemicals were designed for, not for sitting on the couch and calling the pizza guy. And of course, for our ancestors, it was about survival rather than pleasure, wasn't it? And that's why we seek it. I I learned just a few months ago about this thing called fading effect bias, which, which we see a lot in our community. We'll often hear from someone who's been alcohol free for maybe as long as a year. And then she'll say something like, Oh, well, you know, I've proved that I'm not an alcoholic. I've, I've had a whole year without alcohol. I feel fantastic. And now I'm just going to moderate and have the odd glass. And mostly, I mean, I'm not saying everybody, but 90% of people like that, they'll be back to their previous patterns. And then I heard about this fading effect bias. And apparently, according to this theory, our brain tricks ourselves not just with alcohol, but we tend to remember the positive things more than the negative. So after not drinking for a year, we think, oh, I remember those parties I used to go to and that particular wine I used to drink. And you forget, you know, the blackouts and the hangovers and all the negative things. So is that a thing? Have you you heard about this fading effect bias? I haven't heard about that. It it certainly makes sense, although... I have to be honest, in my work, I talk a lot about how we remember bad stuff more than we remember good stuff. We remember bad stuff in the sense of that's what what built our pathways is a past disappointment or threat, and now it feels real. So the person who you said after a year they want to go back, it's possible that they are having some bad feeling from their past and they don't know another way to manage that feeling. And if they understood that it was just a physical pathway caused by this thing that happened long ago, I'll use a very simple example is social rejection. So this is a very deep universal response. So an animal that's isolated is very vulnerable to predators. So we fear being isolated. We look for social connection. But frankly, once you have social connection, it gets on your nerves. And also, we don't want to be just one of the bunch. We want to be special. 
that's a different chemical. So oxytocin is the desire for acceptance and belonging. And serotonin is the desire for specialness, which biologists in the past called social dominance, but no one will admit that they seek dominance. So let's call it special. We don't always get these. And now we feel like it's a real threat when we, I want acceptance and I'm disappointed. I want specialness and I'm disappointed. Disappointment is cortisol, which triggers the cortisol pathways of your past. So that's why we're so hypersensitive to little daily frustrations and why we need a big tool bag of coping skills. And the alcohol one was so well developed in the past that it's a giant pathway in your brain that will always be there, just like my native language will always be there in my brain. I was not born knowing it. And if I move to another country and if, if I speak French all day, the English pathways will still be in my brain, but I'm choosing not to activate them by focusing on something else. Yeah, that's that's a very good analogy to think that we've we've got well, a second language in our head, which is the language of drinking too much, and we just have to not use it, that's all. And when you talked about isolation, that made me think of the uh, the problem that a lot of us non-drinkers have in society because we're we're peeling away from the herd. You know, we're we're being different because I, I don't know about the circles you mix in, but mostly, you know, people tend to say to people like me, "Oh, you know, you don't drink. It's why not?" And when when you first give up, you know, it's it's a real problem for people. And a lot of people they 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 start uh, trapped in their drinking because they they just can't bear the thought of all that pressure of people of being the center of attention and people saying oh have you got a problem then because people assume that you are an alcoholic if you won't take a drink even if you're just trying to be healthy i think there's a lot of projection going on there um, not that i'm not above like projecting things onto other people so i should tell you just my version of it my mother was very controlling of my father and so I have like early circuits about that, right? So when my husband doesn't engage in the conversation and forces me to answer when the waiter asks if he wants one, then it makes me look like a nagging wife. You know, so I'm sensitive about that. So we're all sensitive to whatever happened to us when we were young. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. Yeah, we, we definitely overreact because, as I say to people, most of the other people don't really care whether you're drinking or not, as long as they can drink. We, we just feel really self-conscious when we stop drinking. Well, another thing maybe if if they see that you're, you're not drinking, they may actually respect you and want advice from you. Like, oh, you stopped. How did you stop? Tell me. Yeah. How did so, you do that? <laughs> yeah. So why are you putting a negative spin on it? Either yeah. because you feel criticized because you were criticized in the past or you want an excuse to drink because, and I've heard this from many people, they drink because when they were growing up, their parents hated non-drinkers. Like when their parents met a non-drinker, they'd say, oh, what a snob, what a jerk. So they want to be with the good guys rather than the bad guys. So everyone needs to examine the messages that they got when they were young. And it's very freeing to know that those are just circuits rather than reality. 
You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. If you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just head on over to tribesober.com and hit the membership tab. That's www.tribesober.com. Yeah. Yeah, I love the way you explain in your books that our kind of pathways tend to be set when we are young, you know, and then by our experiences. Is it up to the age of seven or eight? I think you you said. Well, I said that that's peak and it peaks again in adolescence. But fortunately, we can still build new pathways as as we get older. And uh, you've got a lovely analogy where you, you talk about blazing a new trail through the jungle of our neurons. I love that. <laughs> you say we've got millions of your neurons there. So that's obviously what we need to do because we've got our super highway, our drinking highway that we've built conscientiously over the decades. And there it is. I always think of it like a massive motorway, you know, freeway. And our non-drinking pathway is like an overgrown jungle. And we've got to, got to build a pathway, haven't we? And we yes, can exactly. Use- to understand why it's hard is to know how hard it is to get yourself to do something that's not already connected. Like babies, so we're all born with billions of neurons, but no connections between them. So if you see a baby try to pick up food, you know, their hands are not connected. It takes like months just for a baby to connect up its hand. And they're trying and trying, but the neurons are not connected. And then by the end of the few months, it's so easy that you don't even think about it. Like I can get my my hand to my mouth. It doesn't even take any effort. So that's the difference between a myelinated neural pathway and an unconnected neural pathway. So you could think of something that's very hard for you to do, but you can do it with struggle. So a simple example is if you've studied a foreign language and you say, what's the word for that? What's the word for that? That's the effort of trying to activate an unconnected pathway. So to use this example here, how could I feel good at a party without drinking? That's the thing. How can I? So first question is, do you want to be at the party or are you just there because of some past reason? So there'd be two different answers. So just to simplify is like, how can I feel good without drinking? What are other ways to feel good? So you look for something that fits the branches of the neural pathways that you have in the, from the past. Like I used to sort of like to play the piano or I like to read a novel or I do like to have social conversation. So I could go to a coffee shop and hang out at the coffee shop so everyone can find. But then once you pick it, it will not feel as natural as your old habit until you repeat it. Yeah, yeah. I I learned that personally because uh, I could never imagine how, how to socialize without alcohol because all my social life had revolved around alcohol. So, but I knew, you know, that I would have to find a way because I couldn't become a recluse because then I wouldn't get my, what is it, oxytocin. (laughs) So uh, I I used to force myself out, you know, even though I didn't enjoy it, but I just saw it as a challenge. And every time I went out, I wrote it up in my diary, ticked a little box. And I had to do that literally for about three months. And then one night I just found I was relaxed and really enjoying myself. 
And then, you know, even after that, it wasn't plain sailing, but I, I felt like I'd had a breakthrough and eventually it was absolutely fine. But I really had to work hard with that social thing. When you did that, were you going to the old social venues or like a new social context? Uh, well, both really. But I did reconfigure my social life for a little bit as well. I, I used to love going out for long, boozy lunches with my girlfriends, but now I tend to meet them in a really nice hotel for breakfast, you know, and we drink gallons of coffee instead. So you have to tweak, you know, and make it a little bit easy on yourself. I also made sure that there was no alcohol in the house for a year, you know, that kind of thing. So it wasn't on my mind that the fridge was full of wine. <laughs> And so, these these girlfriends that you used to have lunch with, so what became of them? Oh, I, you say that, yes. Well, it's it's quite a, a nice way to really um, sort your, your friendships, if that's not too a colder <laughs> word. But you find that, you know, some people, they lose interest in you if you're not going to go out drinking with them. And other people that really care about you, you know, they'll support you 100%. And even say, um, yes, I, I did see you were, you were knocking it back a bit too much. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you know, I have lost a couple of friends, but not many. And because of the work that I'm doing, I have made a, lo a lot of new and wonderful friends, people that I would never have met normally, because this thing that we're doing, our tribe, it's kind of pulled us all, all together because we have a common interest. Yes, that's great. And also... The people who just wanted your friendship because they wanted a drinking buddy. Yes. It's yeah. good to know that. Yeah, exactly. So if somebody struggles with cravings, I mean, I used to manage my six o'clock craving by going for a long walk. What, what do you think? Is that where the distraction list has to come in? Uh, yes, exactly. So a long walk is great if that works for you. Mm. But a person needs to have a whole variety of options. And what I always emphasize, you probably heard this, is it has to be something you actually like when you're fighting a craving rather than the good for you. You know, people say, oh, you should eat kale and you'll feel great. So it's like, oh, I really want wine. So I'm going to have kale like that. No. <laughs> so unless I mean, also, of course, you know, we said you still have to repeat it for a while. So you can't only focus on things that feel great in the first moment. But at the beginning, start with things you already like. And I know there's the cliche at um, Alcoholics Anonymous that people have too much sugar because that has that same instant gratification. What I talk about is whatever sugar you're going to have in the day, divide it into four pieces and have a little bit, or like I say, let's say you're going to eat one brownie today, cut it into four pieces and have it four different times in the day. So you always have a treat to look forward to. So positive expectations is what uplifts you. That is really why the wine was, it's like it was a positive expectation. So yeah. walking is great, but Many people, when they walk, they get into this replaying arguments and frustrations and angers. And so um, when I walk, I always listen to an audio book and I make sure that it's an uplifting book rather than, you know, anger politics or something. Yeah. And music as well. I think music touches several parts of our brain, doesn't it? 
So I wanted to ask you about our annual Sober Spring Challenge. We've been doing this for about five years now. Here in South Africa, on the 1st of September, it is spring. So we've, we, we've created this challenge and it consists of 66 uh, emails. So every day, you know, there's an email, it's inspiration, tips, tools, etc. We've got 66 mini podcasts, you know, it only lasts about five, 10 minutes, but something, you know, that people can listen to maybe before they go to sleep. And then we put everybody that's doing it because they all start on the same day. We put them in a group. So they're all, you know, cheering each other on and saying, oh, it's day five today. And, it, and it's fabulous. It works really well. But after reading some of your research, I see you, you say it takes 45 days. So are we going a bit over the top here with our 66 days? What's your view on that? I have backed away from having a specific number because when I was taught 45 days by someone who cited studies, and then when I looked for the studies, I couldn't find them. But then people told me they wanted a specific number because people want a, an achievable goal. So we need a lot of repetition. So, uh, yeah, well, so we'll stay with the 66 days, I think. But what's really interesting is that people... A lot of people manage the 66 days. Maybe, you know, some people fall off the bus now and again, but, you know, they get back on the next day and they keep going. And what's lovely is a lot of people get to day 66 and they think, I feel really good. You know, maybe I don't need alcohol in my life. And then a lot of them set an, another goal, a 100 goal, a 100 day goals. So we usually end up with a little subgroup of, of their own and they're going for 100 days. And then we've got people that have never drunk again after they did Sober Spring about four years ago because they realize ah. they don't need it. What a great activity. I'm, yeah, it's fun. It's, I don't know if you've heard about the Sober Curious movement, but it's, uh, it's quite nice because it, I think the, the alcoholic, you know, that word, it has such stigma. And I think people think of an alcoholic as an old homeless man in the park and they look at him and they think, well, that's not me. You know, I'm not like him. But in fact, you know, there's millions of us that are nothing like him, but we're, we're drinking far too much. You know, we're, we're functional alcoholics <laughs> until we're not. So now this movement's come out. It was based on a book by a lady called Ruby Warrington a few years ago, and she just called it Sober Curious. And the idea behind it is to encourage people just to take breaks from alcohol as an experiment. Just be curious and see what your life would look like without alcohol in it. And I think that's such a kind of gentle way of looking at this issue. And I think it will help millions of people to give it a try. So rather than, you know, thinking, oh, I'm an alcoholic, I've got to go to AA, you can say to your friends, uh, oh, I'm not drinking tonight, I'm doing this sober curious challenge, you know, so it's, it's, okay. it's strange, it's just the power of words, isn't it? So, yeah, yeah, we, yeah, we see our yeah. challenges as sober curious, but for many people, the, the, the experiment it has a positive result. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. You know, also, what, um, if I'm with a friend and they have a drink and I don't, I, I don't go there. Like, what are they thinking about? Why am I not drinking? Maybe they think I'm judging them because mm. then I have to prove to them that I'm not judging them. You know, it's all everybody does their own accounting. And yeah. we don't have to so much go into 
because you know what? I don't worry about what you think about my drinking, but I may worry what you think about a hundred other things about me. So I was, I had all that social anxiety. I was always worried who thought I was this, who thought I was that, but it was just based on my particular growing up experience. And Yeah. yeah, I was totally defensive. And so that's really the challenge is to not carry all this burden of, of <laughs> all that past pain. Uh, the next thing I wanted to ask you was more about uh, the kind of community thing. The community that, that I run, it, it, we connect people that all have the same objective. You know, we're all on the same path and it works very well. You know, we all, we're building alliances, releasing that happy hormone so that's serotonin and oxytocin, is it? We're, because these are a bunch of strangers, you know, and you just throw them together on this forum and it's the support there is amazing. And I just wondered if you would um, elaborate on the power of a supportive community and why it works so well. So, of course, it's not so, just us. I mean, AA and every uh, sober community is based on that, that philosophy. So in, in the animal world... Animals seek safety in numbers. So when they feel threatened, they look for a group. And when we feel threatened, we look for support from others. So this is a natural impulse. The reason it's complicated, because, you know, we could get support anywhere, then people want more. Again, it's like, I want support from people who are not judging me. So if you project onto others that they're judging you, then you don't want, you don't feel supported by them. You feel supported by this group of people who are working on their recovery. But that may work for some people. But what we really want is um, like you have the expectation of a reward when you're working on something and feeling healthy by not drinking is one reward. But then once you get that, you want other rewards to keep your happy chemicals going. So in your case, you're building a community and that's your goal. That's stimulating your dopamine. You're, you're getting nice feedback on what you're creating. Um, so I think other people in the group they also need, in addition to that community support, their own goals, that they, something they are building. Yeah, and we, we've designed this thing that we call it our annual tracker. And it's just a piece of paper. It's very low key. I mean, obviously, there's lots of apps that on your phone where you can count your alcohol-free days. But this tracker is so popular because it's uh, it's a calendar, basically. So it just shows one year, you know, from January to December, little squares. And every time you have an alcohol-free day, you just color the square in with your favorite color. And people love it. And I guess it's because they're getting a, a dopamine oh. hit with every square, you know. And That's and such one, a good... And some uh, some clever people, they decide that when they wake up in the morning, they're going to fill in the square straight away. <laughs> oh, that's such a good idea because then you would have to unclick it if you. Yeah. Oh, that's a that's great idea. That's they that's set real the intent, intention. So if you've got like a sixty six day challenge, we have trackers for the sixty six days as well. Every day that they achieve something, you know, well they're posting on the group another day done, and everybody's saying yay, and then they're filling it in their trackers. So that's the small step thing, isn't it? The dopamine. Yes, exactly. So dopamine is stimulated by small steps. That's why we have to keep te- keeping 
keep taking them. Yes. Yeah. And then at the end of the 66 days, they've got all those small steps and that's what creates the neural pathway. So then they find it easier not to drink. And again, not to drink means to do something else. I'll, I'll just give you the example I learned was from people who help people stop smoking. So uh, stops a quit smoking coach. So if you say, don't smoke, don't smoke, don't smoke, I'm putting the idea of smoking into your head. We don't want to talk about smoking. We want to focus you on something else. Why did you smoke? You smoked because you expected it to make you feel good. So now we need another way to expect to feel good and to focus on that. Yeah. Yeah. We, we need to find our natural highs, don't we? Rather than chemical highs. And also so, to have realistic expectations that we're not going to be high all the time. Yeah. 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 I think us drinkers, you know, I, I used to think um, we're just hedonists, you know, because we, we just want to be up all the time. And, and it's only as I've got older that I've accepted, well, actually, you know, we're not put on the planet to be happy, you know, think back to those animals and those, our ancestors. We're, we're put on the planet, aren't we, to survive and to, to breed and to, to find maybe some meaning in our life as, as humans. You know, that's the, the ultimate uh, goal. Well, also, when people feel like they have to be happy every minute, normally it's because they're pushing away a bad thought. So uh-huh. once you build your skill of tolerating bad thoughts, you actually have fewer bad thoughts because you process them. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. We uh, we have a one of our coaches. She always says we have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable, and I like that. You know, because then we start learning. Well, it's not going to kill me if I feel uncomfortable for a while. Whereas when we were drinking, we feel uncomfortable, so we try to drink. You know, just chase that away. So in our community, we've got lots of people now who've got sober with us and uh, they they love the community so much that they stick around and they're now helping new people to get sober and they're setting a great example. So when I read about the mirror neurons, I thought that's probably a a bit of people expressing those. Can you explain what a mirror neuron is, please? Okay, mirror neurons is um, if you imagine like a little monkey when it's born, it doesn't know how to get food, but it watches its mother. And if you're ever around young children, you see that they mirror what what others do. Um, And a mirror neuron actually activates the feeling. So if I watch a horror movie, like some people like them, I, I hate them because I feel like it's happening to me. So when you help someone else achieve sobriety, you reactivate that pleasure of feeling that joy of of accomplishing something that you felt when you first became sober, and now you can keep reactivating that joy. Interesting. Yeah. And I think that because we've got sober people in our community that are obviously happy and they're thriving in their alcohol-free life, they, they inspire people that are just starting out because when you first give up drinking, if you've been doing it for years, you think, oh, you know, it's going to be dull and I'll never have fun again and I'll lose all my friends and <laughs> you, you have all these terrible thoughts. But 
then you meet people that are obviously sober and happier than when they were drinking and that inspires you. So let's talk about, I've, I've learned a big word recently, uh, anhedonia. <laughs> Because uh, myself, a, f- a few months into sobriety, I mean, I was very pleased with myself for a while and I had the pink cloud, I think they call it in AA. And I thought, oh, this was easy. I feel great. Why didn't I do it years ago? And then suddenly I kind of plummeted and I felt really miserable for at least two months. And I thought, oh, my God, if this is what sobriety is going to be like, count me out. I can't do this. I'm not interested in this dark and miserable place. And now, you know, I'm beginning to understand that it was my brain healing. And, you know, maybe I had, I don't know if this is the scientific expression, but a bit of a dopamine deficit. You know, my happy chemicals had got lazy because I'd been relying on alcohol for years to make me feel happy. So it takes a while for your natural happy chemicals to to get back to work. Is that As I said, I don't agree with the way academics explain these things. They make it sound like everybody has happy chemicals effortlessly, just like you have blood and a pulse. No, but you only get them by engaging with the world. That's their job is to guide you that you get a positive chemical and you take a step towards survival and a negative chemical when you perceive a survival threat. They're meant to help you navigate the world. They're not meant to just be effortlessly on all the time. So the anhedonia, so my opinion, what, like what I said before, we have a good feeling when we're stepping toward a reward and a reward is anything that meets a survival need. And a survival need is defined from your past experience. So when you were having your first months of sobriety, you were getting toward a goal. Once you reach the goal, which was sobriety, you needed another goal. That's why you weren't like, it's like, wow, I'm doing something great. This It's just like people who run marathons and they train for the marathon. And then as soon as the marathon is over, they don't know how to get that feeling. So they sign up for another marathon. So we're all doing this. We're all repeating behaviors that stimulated our happy chemicals in the past because we don't understand what it takes to stimulate them. But once you understand, then you could substitute okay, that goal made me happy, but I've already done that, so now I need some other goal. That's so interesting, Loretta, because I I just kind of sat there paralyzed, really, because I I didn't want to start drinking again, but I didn't know how to cope with, you know, feeling depressed. I didn't want to take antidepressants or anything. But then I sat there in the void, as I, I called it in a blog, and then this idea came to me that maybe I should start a sober community, and then I got all excited about that because, you know, my my career had been in training and development. And I thought, oh, I can run a workshop about how to stop drinking. And and that was five years ago. And I'm still doing this thing. And, and it makes me really happy because it's such an ongoing goal. So that's exactly what I did, isn't it? I just uh, sat there wait, expecting my happy chemicals to just work like that. And they didn't because I didn't have another goal. Oh, it's um, nice when these things the make sense. <laughs> the greatest example, in my opinion, is someone who is wanting to get married and they shop and shop for the right person, and it's their goal and it's their total focus. 
And then once they get married, they're depressed. It happens. I know exactly what you mean. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. So, Larissa, we've talked about anhedonia, and I love your goal-setting suggestion. I'm certainly going to keep setting goals, and I shall recommend that to people as well. But it's not just us drinkers who suffer from anhedonia, is it? Millions of people all over the world go to their doctors with this problem, and they're promptly put on antidepressants. So I wondered if you'd explain to us how antidepressants actually work. What to do about antidepressants? I get this question a lot and I'm agnostic on it formally because each person has to decide for themselves. But I think there's two pieces of important information that everyone should know. So the first one is realistic expectations about happiness. So that means other people are not getting happy chemicals all the time for no reason. So if you're not getting happy chemicals all the time for no reason, you don't have to jump to the conclusion that there's something wrong with you or that the medical system can fix it because our happy chemicals are designed to do a job. They evolve to reward us when we take action to promote our survival, however we define it. And this I go into detail in all my resources. And so if you take action to meet your survival needs, you will stimulate your happy chemicals. Soon it will be gone and you'll have to take more action to promote your survival. This is how our brain's meant to work. So if other people are getting happy chemicals, this is how they're getting it. And if other people are not getting it, it's because they're not doing this. And how we got to where we have medicalized and diseaseified all of this is sort of a sad story and I've been addressing it in my new Substack blog called the Inner Mammal Newsletter. Now that's the first point. The second point is what's known as habituation. So our brain is always habituating to whatever inputs we experience. So my famous example is if I walk into a coffee roasting shop, I think, wow, this is the best smell. I'm so happy I'm in ecstasy when I smell that coffee roasting. So why don't I just spend my whole life in a coffee roasting shop? Why doesn't everyone spend their whole life in a coffee roasting shop? Well, there must be a reason because we habituate to rewards. So even once I said to one of the baristas, wow, it smells great in here. And they gave me a blank stare like they didn't know what I was talking about because they habituate to it. So it's the same thing with um, uh, antidepressants. So when you take an external source of happy brain chemicals, that tells your body that you don't need to make them because you have enough. And then after you habituate in that way, then you have less. So now something feels wrong. You don't have that extra spark anymore. So then either it feels like you need a bigger dose or they want to put you on a different one because they think it's not working. Then as that escalates, you get more side effects. So then they put you on more medications to deal with the side effects. So it's a dangerous spiral. And I think everyone should know about it. That's what I think. Every Saturday afternoon, we open up our Tribe Sober Zoom Cafe. It's a safe space where our members can connect, check in, and just shoot the breeze about alcohol-free living. If you'd like to be a guest at the cafe one Saturday, just drop us an email at Janet 
at tribesober.com. That's Janet, J-A-N-E-T, at tribesober.com, and we'll send you an invitation. I heard you talking about this next topic uh, with a lady, um, a lady that does something like I do. She's a soberholic, I think she calls herself. And oh, she yeah. said, how do, how do we cope about with the normalization of alcohol, the fact that it's everywhere? Um, I think she was hoping for some sympathy, but you actually were quite hard on her. <laughs> so tell me that again, because it's it's a very interesting take on it. I mean, we tend to say, oh, alcohol's everywhere. But what was your advice to her? It was great. Well, I appreciate you saying that so much, because when I got your um, your email and your questions, I thought, oh, she's she's expecting sympathy. I hate to <laughs> I hate to hurt her feelings. <laughs> so, in every community, the community defines itself by the world is unfair to our community. That's sort of the norm. Like when a bunch of writers get together and like, oh, the world is so unfair to writers, and they talk about how unfair the world is to writers. When, the world, when teachers get together, they talk about how the world is so unfair to teachers. So when alcoholics get together, they talk about how life is harder for alcoholics. And then people who are trying to lose weight, they talk about how the world is so un. So people bond around common threats. And a simple way to understand this is um, if you see a bunch of monkeys looking for food, if they spread out it's easier to avoid conflict and find food. But the more you spread out, the more you risk being eaten by a predator. So the more they have evidence of predators, the more they stick together. And then they they have like conflict because like, uh, you grabbed my food. But to ease the conflict, they focus on the common enemy. So I'm sticking with you guys because the world out there is so bad. So that's basically how people resolve conflict and like, our group is so great. We love each other because the world is so bad to us. And this is the subject of my second book, The Science of Positivity, because people bond around negativity. And yeah. frankly, I, you know, I have that problem in my own life that I'm, I'm not very social because I, I just don't like to hear all the negativity that no matter what group you're in, People talk about how hard life is for their group. Fascinating. You, uh, you say in, uh, I think it's in your book, that our brain focuses on unmet needs, which means that we tend to focus on what we don't have. So I wondered if, um, if one keeps a gratitude practice, does that help at all? You know, at the end of the day, you write down three things that you're really grateful for in your life. Because I've heard that that, does release happy chemicals, but is yeah, it so true? once again, I, I don't 100 percent agree with um, what the academics are saying. So nothing wrong with gratitude, but the way it's explained focuses people on things that happen by accident, like puppies and rainbows and um, the sun shining, and doesn't help you actually look for the positive in your own life. So what I explain in my book, write down three times a day, stop for one minute and find something positive in your own life. So you could say, I did well at that meeting 
uh, you know, I created something good or um, you wanted to have a new way of speaking to a family member and you did it or a person gets on your nerves and you succeeded at not letting them get to you. So those are really the way you build a positive outlook pathway. And those are not often counted in the gratitude definition. Yeah. Because yeah. Every, every good thing that's happened in my life has started from some bad thing that gave me the kick, just like you. You know, some bad thing gave you the kick to get into the good thing. Yeah, I'm a classic example of someone that was on her way to drinking herself to death and then she managed to stop and, and now I help other people, which is, is very rewarding. I wondered, because, you know, you, you've so much uh, good sense in what you're saying. Um, I wondered if you share some of your kind of hacks, they call them these days, into how you keep so positive and happy and how, how have you adjusted your routine in line with your research and your teachings, your personal routine? Yeah, I think the big thing is to sort of manage my physical energy and especially um, aging. So I tackle my hardest thing first thing in the morning. And then as my day goes on, and let's say something bad comes along and I feel like, oh gosh, this is horrible. If I try to tackle it when I'm exhausted, I know that I'm just going to get more frustrated and more upset. So I put that on my thing to do the first thing in the morning. Now, some people may think, well, I have so many bad things. But, you know, really it's like one really hard nut to crack per morning is enough. If you have three hard nuts to crack the next three days, and then just think, by the end of the week, I'll have cracked five hard nuts, but don't try to do them all at once. So, and then I have certain fun tasks that, you know, are still part of my work, but then I save them for when I'm tired. A lot of people like procrastinate, they do the fun stuff first, and then they try to do the hard stuff when they're already tired. So that's sort of the, the main thing. Um, but I'm very careful about what I give my energy to. So the big thing is I don't listen to the news. It's designed to upset you. And why should I waste my life energy being upset? I just don't focus on things that upset me. And if you think you're helping the world by being angry at politicians, you know, find, find something where you can construct something. And also what I always say is like, if I'm upset with people, it doesn't help me. So I have to train myself not to be upset with people. So the simple explanation, I, I say, my husband gets on my nerves, but it's my nerves. <laughs> so, um, so I have to figure out why he gets on my nerves, take responsibility for my circuits, my chemical reactions. What is it about what he's doing that's triggering me and then either um, talk to him about it or accept that he's a different person. He has a right to his circuits and his worldview. And I have to find a way to feel positive around him. Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. Loretta, that's such good advice. Uh, let's talk a little bit about you. Talk to us about the Inner, Inner Mammal Institute. Sure. Um, so I started this about eight years ago, 
as a way to sort of like you to provide resources and information to people about their inner mammal and the brain chemistry that we've inherited from mammals and how we can control it better by understanding how it works in animals. And um, so most of the, I have a lot of books, but most of the resources are free. So um, to start with, when you go to the website, there's a free five-day happy chemical jumpstart. You give your email address and then you get one email a day for five days explaining each of the happy chemicals and unhappy. Um, I have podcasts, videos, and lots of other resources. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've been working my way through the daily things. They're great. It's Thank that bite-sized chunk of information that's so good, isn't it? Thank Rather you. Than Thank you. Thank you. Lots. And your books, you say there's a new one on the way? Yeah. So uh, I have a new one that just came out, which is a workbook that goes with my um, Habits of a Happy Brain. It's called 14 Days to Sustainable Happiness, which I wrote um, – in a very simplified form so that teenagers and people in recovery could find it easy to work through the steps, 14 steps. Um, <laughs> and then I have a new one coming out in September, which is a regular published book um, called Status Games, Why We Play and How to Stop. And this is about social comparison that we haven't really gone into that yet, but the idea that social uh, comparison. And actually, I should, I guess, add that um, before we started, I I mentioned that I'm very grateful to a South African radio station that did a talk with me about social comparison when I was first starting out. So research in the 70s, 80s, and 90s showed that animals are very competitive, and they're always trying to one-up each other. And when, when they do that helps to spread their genes and natural selection built a brain that rewards you with a good feeling when you one up someone else. And that one up is serotonin. So we could devolve into a mess of people trying to one up each other. But fortunately, we all look for healthy ways to do that. And parents try to teach their children healthy ways to do that. So we wire in. But we all know how tempting it is um, because whenever you stimulate serotonin, or any of the chemicals, it's soon gone. And then you want more. So everybody's always looking for ways to one-up each other. So my new book explains how this happens, help you be at peace with your inner mammal and find healthy ways to do it. Oh, that sounds fascinating. And your podcast is called? The Happy Brain. And you can find it at happybrainpodcast.com. And um, my website, uh, the Inner Mammal Institute is innermammalinstitute.org. There you heard me talking to Loretta Bruining. Let's pick out a few highlights from that conversation. Although our neural patterns are set in early life, it is possible to build new neural pathways when we are older. It just takes a bit more effort and a lot of repetition. I personally find the whole work of neuroplasticity so exciting. I used to think that there was nothing we could do about our brains shrinking as we got older, But now we're learning more and we know that physical exercise and learning will help to keep our brains functioning well. We talked about coping mechanisms. Many of us drinkers gradually came to rely on alcohol as our only coping mechanism when obviously it's far more healthy to have many different ways of coping with life's ups and downs. I love Loretta's idea about a distraction list. 
As we get sober, we have time on our hands. So what better use of that time than to build a distraction list? Use that time to discover new activities. What gives you a natural high? Loretta explained to me how powerful those mirror neurons are, which got me thinking about how our newbies get inspired by the sober people in our community, people who are thriving in their alcohol-free lives. You heard us talking about Tribe Sober's annual Sober Spring Challenge and how a new neural pathway can be built in 66 days. So even if it's not spring where you live, you can still sign up for the 66-day alcohol-free challenge, which starts in September. Just go to tribesober.com to get more info. So let me wrap up the podcast now by sharing my personal light bulb moment. During my first few months of sobriety, I felt okay. I was in a bit of a pink cloud, as AA call it. I was having thoughts such as, well, this is easy, I can do this, why didn't I do this years ago? Then about four months in, my mood plummeted. I felt tired, miserable, bored, and began to wonder if I was on the right path. If this grey and miserable place is sobriety, then I'm not sure it's for me, I thought. But amazingly, I hung in there, partly because I was blogging my journey to sobriety and I didn't want to admit defeat. That's the power of accountability, I guess. So my life continued to feel flat, but I got lots of sleep, stayed home a lot and read lots of books. One day I had an idea. With a long career in training and development behind me, Maybe, just maybe, I could design and facilitate a workshop to help other people to get sober. So I did. The first workshop was fully booked and Tribe Sober was born. My spirits soared as I began to feel useful and motivated. So my light bulb moment was that the low some of us feel in early sobriety is not an inevitable stage we have to go through. Loretta explained that my happy chemicals were flowing in early sobriety because I had a goal that I was working towards day by day. But after a few months, my brain must have registered that goal as achieved and had nothing new to aim for. So I was left in limbo for those few months until I set up that new goal to design a workshop. And the workshops were, of course, just the first goal for me. Then I had to learn about website design, Marketing, social media, advertising, coping with TV and radio interviews, setting up a membership program, and more recently podcasting and editing those podcasts. So that's been my life for the last six years, setting goals and working towards them, which of course has kept those happy chemicals flowing nicely. And helping other people and seeing them succeed has to be one of the most rewarding things we can do. So when our members announce that they've got the blues in early sobriety, we're changing our advice. No longer do we say, oh, that's just anhedonia, so just hang in there and it will pass. Anhedonia, by the way, is the inability to feel pleasure from anything. We now say, oh, that's anhedonia, so you will need to set a new goal to trigger your happy brain chemicals. Preferably a big goal that you can work towards in small steps. If you can't think of a goal, then do book a coaching session with Lynette. If you haven't yet discovered the power of coaching, then just give it a try. 
Your coach is your thinking partner, and you'll be amazed at the ideas that will surface as your coach listens actively to your thoughts and helps you to process them. Tribe Sober members get a complimentary coaching session when they join up, so check out tribesober.com and hit the Join Our Tribe button. For an affordable monthly subscription, you can join our community and change your life. So that's it from me. Thanks for listening. Please follow and share the podcast and I'll see you next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard. It takes courage and grit and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.